Hello, come on in. Great, I'm sorry. I'm Not at all. This is, you know, by the way, we, ha we should mention that we're recording in what, room oh, yeah. 309. What is the purpose of room 309? It is, it is like a storage room, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's why it sounds all echoey as hell in here. And you can hear a toilet flushing. That's why you can hear, yeah. It's right next door. Pipes banging. The good thing about pilot episodes of things is you can sort of explore all the glaring weaknesses that you have right. and, what, and it's going to get better. Every time For you sure. listen to a successful podcast, the first few episodes sound like crap. They do? And as they succeed, it gets it better, gets better, and, better, better. and better. Okay. So that's going to be awesome. Huh, okay. That's um, a good attitude. From the campus of Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, welcome to the Writer's House. Hi, this is John Hume. I am a faculty member at the Writer's House of Rutgers University. I teach documentary uh, filmmaking for writers, and my co-host here is... I'm Amy Labrie, and I'm the program coordinator for Writer's House in the English department, and I'm also a co-adjunct teacher. I teach uh, one creative writing class per semester. What's helpful and what I think is unique about our faculty is that we have faculty who are successful in their own right, in their own fields. Like John has work produced by HBO and is working on projects that are that are forthcoming. Um, most of our writers have books published or they're working on projects. Carrie Dodd has a play that's, that, that's being produced. So you're getting classes from people who are working in the field. And then you're also, there's a, there's a wide range of topics you can cover from anything from digital media and filmmaking, as well as poetry and fiction and, and playwriting and from, from excellent faculty and their small classes. So I think record students can get lost in this big lecture halls they have, but we have classes that are purposely small so that they can get to know each other and you get to you get a literary community more than anything else. It's very strong, I think, the programming and um, just do it, okay? would you like to accomplish with the Writer's House oh, podcast? the podcast. So, yeah. yeah, I think what we, what I'm hoping this will be a, a regular series where we talk about writing and writing processes and, and different genres and forms and problems we face. And, um, and then maybe, you know, hearing from students too. I'd like to hear students' voices about their process because there is a mythology about writing and creating. People who do it well do it naturally well. And, and it's not really true. It's hard. I mean, I hate the people for whom it's easy for because I feel like, you know, they must be hollow and empty inside completely. It can't be good. I you know. I, yeah, no, I always try to say it's, it's a much more blue collar operation than that. It's really like, are you willing to deal with the fact that when you got it out of your head that first time, it doesn't look anywhere near as special as it did up here. Right. And then you got to deal with that and really massage it and fight mm -hmm. and deal with your own insecurities and then show it in its unfinished yeah. form to somebody else right. who's going to tell you what's wrong with it right. and hopefully they'll tell you what's you know that they like about it as well i grew up with that preconceived notion that only the magical few could have that that thing mm -hmm. that i just would never have mm -hmm. and so that's what kept me from i never wrote a thing that wasn't assigned to me until uh, i was like 23 years old okay you know and that was debilitating. I felt like I had this thing inside me that I wanted to get out, but I just was terrified to do so. Yeah. And it would be great if 
via this podcast, we could dispel that myth right. and like show people, especially people who are already interested in it, that it's not some magical thing that you can't no. have. Yeah, anybody can do it. It's just you have to pull your heart out of your chest and put it on. <laughs> not, yeah. It's not even, it's not that, even that awful. Come on no. now. So I just want to let you know I finished watching your documentary oh, you about did. your dad. And I thought it was really moving. And I have so many questions about that. Um, if that's something you want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, fire away. I'm open to any talking about okay. it. Okay. So, so should I summarize it mm -hmm. first? Or do yeah. you want to talk about what... So the movie in question, the movie you're referring to is called Unknown Soldier Searching for a Father. It's a feature-length documentary film I made with... HBO um, back in, it premiered in 2008 on Memorial Day. It is about my father who was uh, killed in Vietnam before I ever met him when I was about three weeks old. And I grew up knowing, you know, kind of consciously knowing nothing about him because as far as I was concerned, it wasn't like I lost a father. I just never had one in the first place. So why yeah. should I care about this guy? Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I was about my late 20s almost 30 when I was like, you know, it's no longer okay that I can't tell you how did he die, what was he like, mm -hmm. was he, you know, was it weird that he was Catholic and my mother was Jewish, mm -hmm. um, and so what I decided to do was to track down everybody that knew him, childhood friends, college buddies, everybody that fought with him in the war, yeah. even found the guy that was giving him mouth to mouth as he was dying. It was incredible. He told me where it happened, and I took my mother and a small film crew back to that place to kind of, in Vietnam, to have a second funeral for mm -hmm. them. So the movie really is kind of one part, who he was and how he died, the story that I uncovered, kind of threaded with this sort of bizarre quest I went on, tracking people down, ending up in Vietnam. And do you talk about this with your students, how storytelling is cathartic? Because that's what it sounds like. I always have my second class I show on on Soldier. Oh, that's right. For yeah. a couple reasons. One, because, one, I'm trying to establish a little street cred, right? So mm -hmm. like when they hear... But really it's about sort of showing my method, the kind of stuff, stories that I'm into. And it also opens a level of intimacy that is, we sort of jump to the level of we can talk about real things mm -hmm. in this classroom. Um, and the, you know, this particular year, um, I showed it in two classes and each one of them had a class where someone had recently lost their father. Oh, so gosh. they waited till after the movie, everybody was gone and we had, you know, what, the kind of conversation that I've had for years when I've had public screens of this movie. Mm -hmm. That almost always happens, but it's the first comes, time. Yeah, yeah, and it was powerful. And, and one of them, the, the thing I'm most excited about is one of my students in the documentary film for writers class, he approached me and said, you know, my father passed away three months ago. And um, as it turns out, he, without telling anybody, he'd been keeping a journal and put it in a safe for the, what would wow, to be given to him after I was dead. Wow. So now he's gonna, his movie in my class is gonna be about reading that journal and also interviewing all the people that knew his father because he was a child of divorce and he felt like mm -hmm. he really never knew his dad quite right. Oh, so that's really cool. Need to feel like there's a natural extension of like what he saw in my film he's gonna try to do. That's great. And I'm gonna do everything I can to support him in that. Yeah, that's what you hope for is that they can take that and then put it apply to their own experiences. This is a very cl clear connection there. Exactly, exactly. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting is that 
you had these tapes of your mom, the letters she sent to your dad, and then the, the letters that they had, the physical um, letters and the photography and... It just made me think in multimedia how there's all these things, how you how you put together all of these things, the letters, the interviews, the, the tapes. That was how you told the story, and that's what we try to teach the students, I think, with multimedia, that you don't have to have, like, a huge production. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, tons of B-roll or, like, all this other stuff. It's really use what you have, and some of the stuff you have, these mementos, can be part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, really well. I was really committed to not having voiceover narration be mm -hmm. the driving thing that told the story. I wanted you to feel like you were on my journey. So that's why it starts out with the very first phone call I made to a friend of my father's. Mm -hmm. That was the moment I knew I had to make the movie. because I knew not only were there the old photographs, there was old Super 8 film, there were these incredible tapes that my mother sent that came back with the body. Every day with you, girl. That's good. Classics 4 here on the Chuck Leonard Show on a Sunday. We're going to swing till 9 this evening. Don't you go away. And if you do go away, you hurry back, eh? Hi, Jackie. I'm just laying here. Today is Sunday, April 26th. And that song that just played, I don't know, it sort of reminds me about how the way I feel about you every day. I love you so much more. It was so jarring and painful to hear my mother at the age of 22, 23, before I ever met her, uh, so hopeful, like, Jack, come home. I can't wait. I'm going to see you in Hawaii. This was only a matter of weeks before he died. Mm -hmm. So there is a scene in the movie where I'm listening to that tape, and it's, like, messing me up. It's really tough. And there's a guy you're talking to with a white beard. I don't mm -hmm. remember his John name. John Seuss, yeah. This is kind of an aside, but the moment where you ask him what it was like to kill someone. Do you remember the first time you were forced to do that? Can you describe that to me? Because it's so, I can't even imagine what that must be like. I don't know if I want to talk about that. Okay. That's another thing we, I try to talk to students about is like, when, what does silence do? What is it like to be quiet? And in everything he doesn't say in that moment, he can't look you in the eye. And there's suspense there too because you don't know what's he going to say. And then. The lack of answer is the answer, right? right. He's the only person I ever asked that question to. I, having not read your book, Wonderful Girl, I was thrilled to find it on Audible and listen to it, and I thought that the performance was really uh, entertaining because it felt like, even though her voice wasn't yours, she captured something. I want to know what, what, 
What was it like for you to hear someone perform your book like that? I don't know the answer because I haven't listened to it. You haven't listened to it at all? No. Didn't I send you a little clip? Yeah, but I can't. I can't. Why? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm very critical of my own stuff after. But, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine listening to it. I would never. Is it weird that you have no input and so therefore have, like, this has been out there for people to listen to? Yeah. And, and I didn't even know it till you told me. <laughs> they didn't call me or anything. Right. I would have narrated it. Okay, yeah, no. Uh, well, you're going to listen to it on the podcast. We're going to play I'm gonna skip a couple that part. executives. No, no, you can't. You know, we're going to listen to you listening to it. <laughs> um, to what degree are the, the stories that I've read slash listened to in your, in your first book, are they autobiographical versus like riffs off the, the, the things that were going on in your life? Um, I would say that they're mostly riffs. So I can, I can point to the moments in the story that maybe inspired it or that I remember as being close to the truth. So in the story Marjorie, which is about a bad babysitter essentially, she, um, I was a bad babysitter. I was such a snoop for sure. Like that's all true. Like I looked at, you know, um, I wanted to know everything. It was like the one time I was set free. We were also not allowed to eat snacks in my house. So anytime I was in someone else's house, that was like all I wanted to do was like get into their cabinets and stuff. But none of that stuff actually happened to me. <laughs> like, um, but it's funny because there's a moment in the, that story where she pushes the baby into the living room and the baby doesn't want to go in the living room. Marjorie drags the carrier toward the door. The baby hiccups and starts crying again, holding his hands up to Marjorie, which makes Marjorie feel like sobbing too. Why don't you want to go in there? The baby bellows again and tries to turn around. She leaves him in the middle of the floor, surrounded by papers and books. Everything is okay, she yells through the shut door, feeling a hard knot of shame in her stomach. That never happened to me, but I did once dog sit for some golden retrievers that I loved. I love dogs, and um, they weren't allowed in the living room, and they knew it. So they would stand just outside the living room door, and while I was babysitting them, this really sadistic thing I did, I like called them into the living room and they didn't want to do it. Right. And I made them do it, and then they shit on the floor. Am uh, I allowed to say shit? Because they were so upset like yes. that they were doing it. Like. And I've carried that with me, <laughs> this idea, this like kind of like, what a perversion. Like, I just felt so bad about that. I don't know what it was that made me do that. But so that, that was kind of where that came from, this idea that you're, when you're 13, um, you don't know what the hell's going on. You kind of do, but you kind of don't. So, so there's stuff in that story about, she kind of knows about sex, but she kind of doesn't. Um, she wants to know, but she doesn't want to know about things. And that was familiar to me, but the incidents weren't. And then for the other story we were talking about, Wanted, I never dated a <laughs> someone who I thought was a serial killer, but I dated a, um, I think the, the inciting thing for that story was this idea that it's better to date, at least as a woman, to, to be with someone. It doesn't really matter who they are. For the first two months, it's slightly wonderful. She can now speak with condescending hopefulness to the single girls at work. When she sees men on the train, she no longer has to wonder if they think she's pretty, if she is reading an interesting enough novel, if she has a workable reproductive system. Now she has dates on Saturday nights and someone to call after she finishes work. 
So what if sometimes he does strange things, like laughing when someone gets shot on a TV show, or else crying over a Michelin tire commercial, his face buried in his hands? What is it? she asks. Nothing. Just like that, the wailing noises shut off, like someone pulling the plug out while vacuuming. She calculates the days they've dated, then the weeks, each additional week bringing her closer to what? Success. Children. A car. A house in the suburbs with central air. A respite from her worried mother calling from a thousand miles away, her voice faint across the wires. In fiction, I really, that's the thing I struggle most with. I, I find in documentary, I can be like an open book. But when I write fiction, it feels like there's some kind of blockage. But how do you, like, how do you guide your students or someone like me to, like, remove whatever is between, you know, your voice and what's going on here? You mean how to, how to get this stuff on the page? Yes. Um, I guess the first is to, to not try to look good at all. So to write all the things. Like, I, you know, I can tell you that the story, the, the babysitter story, there's a moment based on my real life, but it, it would be harder for me to write that. I write around that. It's still there. But um, I guess I sometimes think, I, I think inside I'm so angry. <laughs> That's where humor comes from, too. So furious about so many things that the way around that is to, to just be as honest as, to be mean to my characters. Like, bad things happen to my characters because it's what brings out what their strengths are. Character has to come with some strengths, but you have to make it hard mm -hmm. for those strengths to emerge. So, you know, writing about the difficult things or having, you know, the things that you think inside but would never say aloud, my characters, those are the things I put on the page. Mm -hmm. The things we're all thinking but would never say. I go ahead and say them because we're all, I talk about this in class too, like we have an external self that is like pretty superficial and safe and then we have an internal self and we're either tuned into what that voice is saying or not, but it's still there. And that's the voice that judges every person who walks by, you know, yeah, sure. usually negatively. Uh, that happens to you, right? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> but we don't want to... Try not to listen to that too often. No, but, but it's still there. It's still and so knowing that... I think the more you can be honest about what your internal thoughts are, the good and the bad, um, the, the better off you are on the page. idea of bringing some students in because what's exciting to me about being involved with the Writer's House from the get-go is the idea that it's not just literary writing, mm -hmm. but we're talking about and exploring all the ways that we can tell stories in different forms, be it that audio only, be it that documentary filmmaking or narrative filmmaking. There's just so many opportunities in this day and age. Like when we were coming up, right. the, the means of production were so expensive and difficult and mm -hmm. ungainly that you could not just say, I want to make a film. Right. Nowadays, all you need is your phone. Mm -hmm. And that's a really exciting time. And I think that's, it, you can feel the energy in the building and in the classrooms, you know, having sat in another teacher's classrooms, you can feel the energy of like kids are really feeling like the possibilities are, are there for them. Mm -hmm. And to be able to facilitate that is pretty exciting for me. Yeah, me too.
Imagine that feeling when you wake up cozy in your bed, when breakfast is already made downstairs, and you can already smell it from your room. You already know that bacon, maybe even sausage, pancakes, waffles, everything you like will be out and ready. So you finally get yourself out of bed. You walk downstairs and you're greeted by your family, maybe even your pets if you have them. And for me, this kind of morning is Sundays. So today's featured student is Abigail Karolewski. She's a sophomore at Rutgers University and she's also a member of the varsity gymnastics team. Because in high school, my time was constantly consumed with gymnastics, I always took every opportunity I could to spend time with my family. As I became older, I feel like I became a lot closer with my parents. That's when they started really telling me details of their childhood, how they grew up, their parents, things I didn't know when I was little. Now, I know my mom never had the perfect life, and neither did my dad. But my mom never really went in-depth of what her childhood was like. I only got glimpses of it. So it made me start to think, what was her typical Sunday like? Whatever, I mean, you know, my mother wasn't really up because she was probably up all night partying the night before. You know, I would just carry on doing my thing. And, you know, I was always um, an idealistic person. Like, I, you know, I always say that I, I learned how to you know, have a family from watching TV, The Brady Bunch, the, the Little House on the Prairie. I love those shows. I love those shows that had the perfect families because I really didn't know what was a normal family. I didn't have any siblings, so it was just me, which I think is an important thing to mention. I had no siblings. It was me and my dogs, and my dog was the most important thing in my life in terms of you know, the, the being that I could turn to to play with or talk to or snuggle with, they were always there. So my for me, the reason I will always, until my dying breath of animals, is because they were always there for me. They were my siblings. They were my friends. They were, they were there for me when humans couldn't be. I talk about in the podcast how my mom's parents had really bad like substance abuse issues. So not that she, I feel like she just doesn't want to relive that, but I also think she, she liked talking about it because it was therapeutic in a way. Because I know my mom likes to be listened to, so I think it kind of helped her in a way of kind of not moving on, but to just let it out. Yeah. Doing it about my mom, I wanted to obviously make it respectful, but I wanted to make it in a way where I wanted to represent her the way I felt like she, her story needed to be told. I think at the end I even used a clip from the Brady Bunch. I wanted to include that because that was a big part of her you know, life, and she said she always looked at the perfect family. So things like that, I wanted to add into it. Well, thank you, Mom, for taking You're your welcome. Time. Yeah, I love you. Love you. This is Abigail Karaluski, and today you tuned into this week's episode, Sunday Morning. That's the way we all became the Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. That's the way. How did exploring this kind of personal subject matter affect you, um, both as a student and as someone who might, I don't know, consider going into um, a creative profession in the future? So I think it kind of made me explore like different, not tools, but mediums on how to edit things and even just opening up my eye to things that 
go on around me because sometimes I feel like I notice things. I'm like, oh, like I can make a cool documentary on that, like walking down the street. So that kind of opened up my eye to exploring new things and looking at things in a way I didn't think I could see them before. You now have an online presence that you could use later for whatever job you decide to do because that's where we're moving with storytelling, a lot of it. So to pursue a creative writing minor, which can have an emphasis on digital composition or, or filmmaking or storytelling, um, I think is useful to anybody. It supplements any, any field you decide to go in. Um, and one other thing I wanted to say about what you said is that we heard the phrase, the personal is political. What's happened to you and or, or what you're going through is interesting from a human perspective. I just want to hear your story because your story makes me remember my story and you know what I mean? I just saw, um, I'm in another creative writing class and we had to make um, a creative nonfiction piece. Mm. So I wrote it on this and then I did like a series of poems with it just cause I don't get to write poetry often. Which I thought was cool just because I represented it two different ways. Like actually writing it out and writing it in that creative way with the poems, that was different. So thanks for coming, Abigail. And uh, just a reminder, um, each episode we're going to feature work by student filmmakers and writers and podcasters. So if you're interested in submitting your work uh, as something that might be featured, Amy, is there somewhere they can all send it? Yes, you can send your work to me at al1048 at english.rutgers.edu, al1048 at english.rutgers.edu. We're open to anything. We want this podcast to be about things you're interested in and um, questions you might have about craft or ideas or discussions or things you want to argue about. I like to argue, so be happy to do that at some point. Is there a website where they can kind of learn more about the Writer's House and, yes. and, and places to submit work and stuff? If you want to get more information about what's happening at the Writer's House, visit us online at wh.ruckers.edu, and there you'll find... Our list of events, classes you can take, instructor profiles, student work, and a whole lot more. Stay tuned for our next episode when we'll be speaking to Alex Dawson, one of our faculty here who runs the Inside the Writer's House series, where he has invites classes to meet virtually with really well-known writers from around the world. He Skypes the writer in, and we get to see the writer's home. We get to see what's in the writer's fridge. We get to meet the writer's cat if the cat is home. Um, it's just a really interesting way to see what it's really like to live as a writer in the real world. So that's all for now. And uh, stay warm out there as the cold front comes in. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. podcast is an original production from the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Our theme song is Collarbone by Fujia and Miyagi. This episode features music by Chill Study, Bull Champion, Gomez, Kruder, and Dorfmeister, and the Lemonheads. I want a bit part of your life. Walk on with me fun. I just want a bit part of your life. Little more